Y'all are such a loving fellowship. And a loud one, too, for that matter. (laughs) It's okay to be loud. No, it isn't. Okay. (laughs) I'll try to be loud for you. Daniel chapter 11 is our text, uh, actually the last part of Daniel chapter 11. And that's what we're going to conclude this evening is, is, is this chapter. This is the sixth in the series of studies that we've done in chapter 11. And uh, the primary focus of what we've been looking at has been the nature and the character of the Antichrist that is to come. And uh, there have been so many forerunners to the Antichrist in history. And uh, some possibly very uh, current, others in, in the uh, near past, others down deeper into history. Uh, all of them giving us a little bit of that character but not being the very one that is going to come with such depth of demonic power as this Antichrist will be. I want to begin reading in verse 36 as we get into verses 40 through 45. Because again, I want the whole picture then of verses 36 to 45 as, as, as really the, uh, the picture of, of this, of this uh, Antichrist or beast as he's called in the book of Revelation by John. In Daniel 11 verse 36 it says, And the king shall do according... To his will. So now we realize that he is a very willful person. By the way, I'm I'm having to take the uh, sound off of my my phone. So if if your phone is uh, is not on on vibrate, let's put it there. Put her there. Okay. The king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the God of God. So there, there, is, no, there is no comparison to him in his, in his own mind and heart. There is no other god but himself. He will even challenge and blaspheme the God of all. And shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. And as we studied that particular passage a couple of weeks ago, that deals actually with the indignation, which is the wrath that is to come, primarily the wrath that is to be going on for the sake of bringing Israel through this particular fire of persecution, of chastisement for their own sins, as we saw back in Daniel chapter 9. So this Antichrist is going to be prospering until that wrath or indignation be accomplished, For that that is determined shall be done. So whatever God has determined, it's not the enemy that determines, it's God that determines. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. And as we said last time, uh, God is is, uh, Elohim, so it could also be God's 
of his fathers, nor the desire of women, which is he, he does not regard the desires of women. He doesn't de- regard what, ri- what, what women want and what women desire. Please understand that because too many people look at that and they say, well, that must mean that he must be homosexual. Okay, no. Uh, nor regard any God. In other words, he doesn't regard these things or these wishes. For he himself, or for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honor the God of fortresses. So everything that then he has, he's going to honor the God of war. The God of forces is the God of fortresses or the God of war. And a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. And by the way, if we, we didn't spend a lot of time on that particular thought. But in fact, a God whom his fathers knew not would, would actually be any, any one of millions of demons. It's a demonic entity possibly, okay? Which, of course, he's being uh, led by himself. And thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he, had ch- uh, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many, and shall divide the land for gain. Now, anytime we see the mention of the land, we have to think Israel, and with the one thing that God says he doesn't want to happen in the land, which is to divide the land. But here, he's going to do what he wants to do in, in dividing the land, which puts him even more at odds with God. And now we get to our text. And at that time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. He shall enter also into the glorious land, that is Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon or Ammon. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over the, all the uh, precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and Ethiopians shall be at his steps. These are all names that we can be familiar with because they're also current, current names. So that means these are uh, very much a, a part of what's going on in prophecy today. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. This is kind of like reports. Reports are coming to him that are troubling him. And therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many, which means actually to, to destroy many. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. So let's consider what we do know so far. The Antichrist to come will be proud and arrogant, adopting the attitude and the character of the Caesars, of the Hitlers, and of the Stalins of the past who have cursed the earth in this manner. His wickedness will grow worse and worse as he reveals his true character and intentions through his deceptions of peace and unity. Remember, he comes at first with peace. And he comes to unite. And then the real Antichrist is revealed. 
He will be the consummate blasphemer, ranting and raving chiefly against the Most High God of Israel and of the true believer as well. In other words, the God of the true believer as well as the God of Israel. He will rant and rave against that God. I I can tell you this, there are world leaders today that are getting this close to doing it themselves. And even by their language, they kind of give you already an indication that they would rant and rave against God, but they don't want to lose votes. And they don't want to lose, you know, their, their position in the world. This Antichrist will unite the world. He will deceive Israel. He will manipulate the Muslims. He will entice the large military nations like Russia and for a time will rule over the whole world. When I, when I mention the manipulation of the Muslims, uh, that, that's, that's only something that we've been talking about in, in our study of the book of Revelation along with our study of the book of Daniel because everything that has revolved around the nation of Israel and its struggles, it always comes back to this battle of religion, this battle of whose God is greater. Isn't it? We can admit it because that's the truth. There are others that need to learn to admit it as well because it's really the truth. So let's add to that a few more things in a deeper sense. This man of sin, which by the way in in the letters to Thessalonians, uh, 2 Thessalonians in particular, Paul calls him the man of sin, and the word sin there literally means lawlessness. He is the man of lawlessness. So this man of lawlessness will have as his chief end the promotion of sin. He will, in fact, promote sin. He will gratify lust, and at the same time, he will glorify sin. And and it saddens me to say that a lot of that is even happening today. The glorification of things that the Bible calls abominations is in fact the promotion of sin. Not just the allowance of sin, it is the promotion of sin. It is promoted, not just allowed. As we've seen already, he will do his own will, not realizing, not realizing fully that he is accomplishing God's will all along. And the indignation, the indignation that is referred to in text, in the text in verse 36, is that which the Lord is bringing against His people Israel for, the, for their rebellion, which includes even their rejection of their Messiah, which painfully, painfully, they brought upon themselves after Pontius Pilate washed his hands of Jesus before going to the cross. And I just want to simply say, folks, I love the people of Israel. I I love Israel. We're connected to Israel, okay? We are connected to Israel. But this is the truth. This This is what they have to deal with, is their own words. After Pilate washed his hands, this is what the people said. In Matthew 27, 25, they answered all the people and said, His blood be on us. And our children. And you know what they cried after that? Crucify Him. His blood be on us. They cursed themselves. 
Crucify Him. Painful. And the reason it's painful is because it will take the horrors of the great tribulation, the last three and a half years of the seven years of tribulation, it will take the horrors of the great tribulation to finally open their eyes as a people to recognize that their Messiah all along was Yeshua. Jesus. And we can thank the Lord. You see, this is something that we know is going to happen because in Zechariah 12 verse 10 it says, And I will pour upon the house of David. Now remember, this is pointing toward the time of the day of the Lord because at the end of the day of the Lord, this is when they, their eyes are open. But it says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon whom they have uh, they shall look upon me. So who would that be speaking? That's Jesus. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And John would also take this particular understanding and show us in Revelation 1 verse 7 where he says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so. Amen. So getting back to Antichrist. Let's remember also that that Antichrist will honor a God of fortresses, a God of forces, which is a God of war. And so his strength will be in his vast wealth that he has accumulated and, and his military might. All in all, offering these riches and these pleasant things, as as it's called in the text, to this God in all strongholds. In all the strongholds where the Antichrist will be manipulating, he's offering all of these things. And it is significant that the word for fortress or fortresses, it's it's the Hebrew word ma'uz. It's used at least six times in chapter 11. At least six times. And I, I, I say that according to, depending on what translation we might have, but, but there's one variation of the word that's, that makes it six, but usually there's five words, and then there's that six. But, but either way, it's, it's used at least six times in chapter 11, and each time it is used, listen, it, each time it, it's used, it means a strong place. A strong place. It, it, it's a strong, oppressive place. Because war, when it, when, it, when it gets right down to it, is an oppressive thing, isn't it? When it comes from treachery, when it, when it comes for all of the wrong reasons. In our own country today, you know, we, we have, we have a, a good military. Probably the greatest military on the earth today. But it isn't our intention to go and, and, and bring war to people. The primary, the primary purpose right now, and always been, has been for the protection of, of our people in our country, in defense of our country. But in most, in, in most nations that have uh, uh, 
people like Hitler, you know, it, it was, uh, the military was used to overtake. And I think we all can understand the difference. But the strong place is, 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 is the fortress. And, and it speaks of this kind of attitude of overtaking, not so much of defending. So this just means that power will become his God. And he will spend everything to become all-powerful. And this is how he will attack every stronghold, as referenced in verse 39. With all that he has, with all that he has acquired. And so with all of these things in mind, then we focus now on the final section of this chapter, which is beginning with verse 40. It says, And at that time of the end, shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like, like a whirlwind. Now, let, let me give you just a kind of a mundane example here, but at times our own military is called upon to have to work against some kind of a, a dictator, some kind of a person who's already overtaken some people or some nation, and we want to, we want to free them from that oppression. Okay, so you, you get this, this particular sense here, you know, that there's a push now from the king of the south. There's a push, it says, from the north. But remember who the north is. We, we, um, <laughs> we kind of label the, the king of the north already because, you know, we came through our understanding of who Antiochus was and where he was from, which was up in the north, the Seleucid dynasty. dynasty. And then, of course, immediately we went from Antiochus Epiphanes all the way to, you know, to this Antichrist. So... We went straight to the north there. So there's a push. And at that time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him, like a whirlwind, with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. Now, those are, those are the way that uh, you know, the prophet was able to see in his time what was happening in, in this future war over thousands of years that was yet to come. Uh, and it's interesting that the, the, the word chariot there, uh, uh, in Israel, Israel has tanks. Uh, and, and their tanks are called merkevas or merkevas. And, and th- that word is the word in, in, in Hebrew is, is chariot. So uh, it gives you a kind of an indication that even the word here, written thousands of years ago, was already seeing what was happening even today. So chariots and with horsemen and with many ships being, of course, both army and navy are involved. And he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. Now, the first thing that we have to take into consideration is that these events are to definitely take place at the end time. Because that's exactly what the text tells us. It tells us, and at the time of the end. So that's a very clear indication of what we're talking about and when we're talking about. So... These events are definitely to take place at the end time of human history. Now, let me say that there are a number of gaps that can only be filled in from the other books of prophecy and, most importantly, from the book of Revelation. Now, we're not going to try to fill in all the gaps. We already studied the book of Revelation not too long ago, so we went from Revelation to Daniel. And so we we actually had, we all did, we did the gaps first, and now now we're, you know, so we should know where these gaps will be. But uh, let me say that there are a number of gaps, and, and we, we, we've, we've dealt with that in Revelation. But in saving time, we count on what we already know about the beast. And uh, he will declare himself and his government to be supreme ruler. And uh, actually, the, his government is to be the, the state of the, you know, the supreme state of the world. And when that happens, 
Of course, not every government will simply and willingly submit. Not every country is going to submit. And by the way, his proclamation to rule is not going to be made in Rome. It's not going to be made in Washington, D.C. It's not going to be in New York or in the Netherlands. It's not going to be in Paris or in London. It's not going to be in Cairo or in Lebanon. It is going to be made in the city that is the epicenter of all Bible prophecy, and that is Jerusalem. We already know that. And he's going to make the proclamation in the middle of the seven years in the most holy place in the rebuilt temple. But we already know that. We've already seen it. Jesus himself, first of all, said in Matthew 24, 15, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation. In other words, the abomination that makes desolate, that makes the holy place unclean and spiritually empty. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. In other words, the abomination being the Antichrist, standing in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Let me say this real quickly here, but there are those people who, who believe that all of Bible prophecy has been fulfilled already. So they believe that this was accomplished in A.D. 70 when the Romans came into Jerusalem and burned down the temple and all and took everything and, uh, and, and, and actually began the, this, uh, the, the diaspora or diaspora where, where, where all the Jews began to spread out into, the, into the, the world. Well, the problem with that thought is this. The Roman ruler who, or the Roman general who came in and, and, and did all of these things did not go into the temple and did not proclaim himself God, did not make any kind of image of himself in that particular temple. In fact, they just destroyed everything. So that was not fulfilling things already. In other words, eighty seventy did not fulfill. Jesus is talking about another time. And we look at the nature and the character and the actions of the Antichrist and we realize this hasn't happened yet. But it's going to. Now, if you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, then you see, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. In other words, the day of the Lord, that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the man of lawlessness be revealed, the son of perdition. The son of perdition, the son of lostness. Perdition means lostness and of, uh, of, of great sin. Who opposes, and notice this, Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. I mean, that goes along exactly with Daniel's vision. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That is the abomination of desolation. And so, that is where he makes the proclamation. So it's, it's very clear then. And we're not talking about Rome. We're not talking about Europe. We're not talking about even any other part of the Middle East. We're talking about Israel and Jerusalem. And if you remember, not too long ago I said, 
I will not call that land Palestine. Though it was called that, there is no Palestine. Biblically, historically, and currently, there is no Palestine. This is one of the things that... (laughs) What Paul said in verse 3, he says, Let no man deceive you by any means. But how many people are deceived today? And billions live under that name of Palestinian. But it's not a people. Well, it is in a way now because we've, you know, pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. But Palestine was just a name that was given to the to the land in a way to dis, uh, just to, I mean, to depress the Jewish people. To, to you know, to, to make them feel like, you know, they were defeated. Using the very name of a, of a, of a nation that had come against them and had defeated them at one time. The, the Philistines. It comes off out of the word for Philistine. So Palestine was, was, was what, a, what the Romans called the land. But there's no Palestine. It's called Israel. Always has been, always will be. Okay, again, not every nation will be willing to submit to this arrogant beast. In in verse 40 of our text, we are told of a major conflict between the North and the South. We're not talking about the Civil War here in the United States. Because that was a long time ago. But here's another war uh, between the South and the North, or the North and the South. The South being, of course, Egypt... The, Tola, the, the, Ptolemaic, uh, no, the Ptolemy, Ptolemaic, the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt, and the north being led by the Antichrist or the beast, and that is the area of Syria or uh, kind of an expanded area of Syria, because it was the larger of the two of, of the four nations that came out of Greece, uh, the Seleucids, and uh, but these two nations are going to fight their battle in Israel. Or in the area of Israel. Their field of battle will be the glorious land. That's why we, when you see the word glorious land there, the phrase glorious land, you realize that that's talking about Israel. So we must remember that the beast will be in Jerusalem due to his geopolitical negotiations to broker a peace deal for Israel, which would include a temple on the Temple Mount. That is necessary. Paul talks about it, so we know it has to be. The book of Revelation, John talks about it quite a bit. In other words, the the vision that John received, received a lot about a a temple being in Jerusalem. And it could only be on the Temple Mount. It couldn't be any place else. And it won't be any place else. So it will take a very masterful negotiator to bring this about. He brokers this peace deal, which no one else has ever really been able to do. So it includes a temple on the Temple Mount, which he, of course, the Antichrist, desecrates midway through the seven years of tribulation. And so, in effect, the south, which is Egypt and its allies from northern Africa, and we'll meet them in just a moment, they're going to attack Israel. But in effect, they're going after the Antichrist. And we can pretty much count on this king of the south as being from Egypt. 
since Egypt is mentioned twice in verses 42 and 43. Egypt is mentioned by name. Now, at the very same time, the king of the north, who is Antichrist, will push back against the king of the south. Now, I'm stressing that because, we, first of all, we already taught that. But also, there, there are a lot of people that, you know, will, will say, well, you know, we, we realize that Antichrist comes from the Syrian part, the north. But then we get to this passage, and then it says the king of the south pushes at him, and then the king of the north will push at him. And, and so it's like the king of the north is pushing against himself. But no, it's the king of the south pushing at him, king of the north pushing at him. Well, they're pushing at each other. But where are they pushing? They're pushing in, in Israel, where the people were living, and, and, and will be living, I should say. So this will take place in the land of Israel, which doesn't bode well for those who live in the glorious land. Now let me interject here that some commentators would say, as, as, I, as I was just mentioning, I'm getting ahead of myself, you know, that the king of the south and the king of the north would be doing battle against Antichrist in Israel uh, as they interpret this verse. But the problem is that because we've already applied the typology of Antiochus Epiphanes, I think I've already said this, ah, it's okay, repetition is always a good teacher. But, the, you know, if we apply that typology of Antiochus Epiphanes as king of the north in his time, then obviously Antichrist would be as well that king. So I think we settled that. Let me also mention that it is believed by some that the invasion of Israel, if indeed both the king of the south and the king of the north are invading simultaneously, is possibly... Now, some believe this. I'm, I'm not saying that that's what I believe right now. But some believe that this is the battle of Gog and Magog, which is found in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. But there are some distinctions between the two invasions that we should best reserve for our study in Ezekiel later, because that would just take a lot of time to realize that we're probably dealing with something totally different. Of greater importance, though, would be the description of the Antichrist army and navy its armaments and its military approach, which I've already gone ahead and told you a little bit about that, figuratively or figuratively sweeping through these countries like a flood. You know, the overtaking, the passing over and all that. Those are words that say they're just coming in like a flood into this land. It's very reminiscent, by the way. In the, in the, in the Hebrew, it's very reminiscent of the Nazi blitzkrieg of World War II. How the Nazi war machine moved into, diff, into various nations, for the most part at, at, at the very beginning of, of, uh, of uh, Hitler's uh, uh, push into Czechoslovakia and a few other places. I mean, it, it was done without any opposition whatsoever. And it began, by the way, with deception. It began with deception. So much so that uh, the, the, the Prime Minister of Britain, Neville Chamberlain, was duped into believing Hitler, who said, yes, we will not invade. We will not invade uh, Czechoslovakia. So, you know, well, you all know the story. You've probably seen it on a history channel. You know, Chamberlain holding up this, this, you know, this letter from Hitler, you know, we have peace in our time. I have the assurance of Hitler. And not long right after that, boom, they just walk in and take it. The deception. That, you know, history, folks, will repeat itself. History will repeat itself. Let's look at verse 41. He shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. 
what we what were once known as Edom, Moab, and Ammon are now found in the area of the nation of Jordan. So it, when you go to Israel and you go down to the south and you look at the Dead Sea and uh, wherever the uh, the Dead Sea was, as well as the, uh, the, the Jordan, which at that point, you know, it emptied out in the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea is just dead now. But uh, you look across to the east, and that, you know, the hills of Edom, the hills of, uh, of Moab, and, and uh, it's all in Jordan. So Jordan today is the land where these uh, nations have been, uh, were, were originally from, you know. But, but that's the nation, you know. You don't look, when you're looking forward, you're, you're not so much looking at that there's going to be another Edom or Moab or Ammon. No, now it's incorporated into the people of Jordan because that's where they were. So now uh, those people will be spared uh, from the attack of the Antichrist. But there's a reason why. There's a reason why they're spared. More than likely, it is because this will be the place that God had prepared for the Jewish remnant that will flee for their safety. How many of you have ever heard of a place called Petra? Petra, okay. Well, Petra had an old name in the Bible. It's the, the place called Selah, S-E-L-A. And it's in Jordan. And as a matter of fact, in the area of Petra, there, there are these rock formations. They actually had communities that lived in these areas at, at the time, living inside the rocks and all. And if you've seen, uh, let me see, I'm trying to remember, uh, uh, Indiana Jones and uh, something or other. Kind of, kind of went on. The Last Crusade. Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade. Uh, yeah, they, they show that at the very, toward the very end, you know. And they have a big scene inside there. Anyway, uh, so that's, that's Petra. And this is, this is going to take place after the Antichrist rebuilds the temple and demands worship as a god. And, and for three and a half years, the Lord will protect them until Jesus returns to set up his kingdom. <laughs> so let me show you where that is in the book of Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 16. Isaiah 16. And verse 1, 1 through 5. Send ye the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah, that's Petra, to the wilderness unto the mount of the daughter of Zion. That's Israel, of course. For it shall be that as a wandering bird cast out of the nest, so the daughters of Moab shall be at the fords of Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make thy shadow as the night in the midst of the noonday. Hide the outcasts, bewray not him that wanders. In other words, bring them in. Let my outcast dwell with thee, Moab. Be thou a covert to them from the face of the spoiler. That be the Antichrist. For the extortioner, the Antichrist, is at an end. The spoiler ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. Now notice verse 5. I add this because you need to realize why they're placed there and hidden. And in mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. And of course, pointing to when Christ comes, then the Jews will go in with him and be with him in their own, in their own land, in their own city. All right. Verse 42 and verse 43 of our text describe what will happen to Egypt and its allies, Libya and Cush. Libya is known in the scriptures as Put, P-U-T, and Cush. Actually, Cush is, is uh, 
primarily Sudan, but it includes Ethiopia. And the way things are going today in, in Africa, Ethiopia is, is beginning to move more in, in, in the, uh, toward the, the Islamic religion. It used to be a very strong Christian country, actually. But now, now Ethiopia has been swallowed up by, by Muslim, uh, Muslim invaders and all. And uh, so they're, they're pretty much going the way of Sudan. Sudan's already, you know, uh, Muslim. And, and so that, that matters here as well because of their being mentioned. But let's, let's read it, verses 42 and 43. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. In other words, Egypt can't get away from whatever the Antichrist is coming after, after to do. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. So he overtakes them and he takes, you know, the spoils. And the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. All right, let's, let's kind of explain that. This passage here now, these two verses indicate that the Antichrist will conquer Egypt and gain control of the nation's enormous wealth, as well as the wealth of Libya, again put, and Ethiopia and Sudan, which we call Cush. The last phrase of verse 43, the last phrase of verse 43, which says, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps, it's quite interesting in that it suggests that put and Cush will make their peace with Antichrist abandoning, abandoning Egypt. I mean, they're going to be at his steps. In other words, you know, they're kind of bowing down, in essence, to him. And so these two countries will now be added to the list of the beast's obedient and subservient allies. And that's kind of interesting, too, because there's a, there's a number of prophecies in the Old Testament that actually speak of Egypt as being one of the nations that will be uh, in, in, uh, in the millennial kingdom. Uh, so it's an, in, uh, an interesting little thing. We'll, we'll get to that one of these days. But uh, the news isn't all that good for the beast. Okay? We think that the, you know, the beast is winning, and, but the news isn't all that good because in verses 44 and 45, But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many or to destroy many. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. None shall help him. Now his rage will be demonstrated as we reach what will be for Antichrist the beginning of the end. The empire he has supposedly built by himself is coming rapidly uh, apart at the seams. The empire that was built on treachery and war and held together by terror and lies and every form of wickedness and energized by Satan is now tumbling down at Antichrist's feet. It is considered by various commentators and Bible prophecy teachers that kings from the east, some believe as far east as China and Japan and Korea, will take advantage of Antichrist's local troubles to marry and to mobilize against the West, as they put it, in preparation for Armageddon. In fact, if you will read Revelation 16, verses 12 through 16, this is what it says. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, 
These are the vile judgments or the, the bowl judgments. And that's rain. And I have to tell you, that's hard rain for us to hear it. Shall we enjoy it for a moment? Actually, I don't enjoy it because I have to later go around looking for the leaks. (laughs) (laughs) And the sixth angel poured out his vial. Boy, talk about pouring out the vial, then this happens, you know. (laughs) Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up uh, that the way of the kings of the east might uh, be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon. The dragon, of course, is Satan. And out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So they all had really the same wicked spirit. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Har Megiddo. Har Megiddo. That is Armageddon. Har Megiddo. So, is this Armageddon? Well, we won't answer that tonight. But verse 45 of our text foretells Antichrist's end. First of all, somewhere between the Mediterranean Sea and possibly the Dead Sea, because it says between the seas, in the vicinity of Jerusalem, the Antichrist will plant his magnificent palace, his tabernacles. I thought of this in a, in a way that made me think of, of you know, the, the counterfeit that he is. To be very much like King David, who was not a counterfeit. He was a true king <laughs> that was uh, ordained by God to be king. And to be the forerunner of Jesus, who is the only true king. David, who built, you know, a, a palace you know, there in, in, in the city of David. But was reserved in, in allowing his son to be the one to build the temple, the house of God. Because David had blood on his hands, if you remember that. But here now we see somewhat of the, the counterfeit, you know, going to build his own place, build his own house, as it were, in the area of Jerusalem. And, and for what reason? He's just portraying himself as a false messiah. But with all the reports of amassing uh, opposition, he comes to his end. And none can help him. And that brings to mind actually another, uh, 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 another couple of prophecies in Isaiah and Ezekiel where it references a... You know, a, a character that is, is like Lucifer, um, in fact, all having the same character, the same nature, the same wickedness. 
And someone says, is this the man that caused all this problem? Is this the one that has caused all of this worldwide commotion? And you look and see what he appears to be. And, and the thought of Hitler came, comes to mind when, when you think that a whole nation of people were blinded to the very fact that here was a very short, dark-haired Austrian who deceived a whole nation of people into believing that they were the Aryan race, the supreme race of all races. And yet when he died in a bunker by killing himself, when found, he was just a mere man. Yet if you ever heard him speak in, 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 uh, in newsreels of the past, you could sense the demonic spirit. You could sense the, the fact that he was possessed of the enemy in the way that he carried himself, in the things that he believed, in the things that he did. To desire to el eliminate a whole race of people, the Jewish people, God's people, and came very close to doing it. But on the way he killed nearly seven million Jews. And he killed a lot of other people too. You know, we talk about the Jews. He killed the gypsies. He killed Christians who stood with the Jews, who protected the Jewish people, who hid the Jewish people. This, it's the evil that is saying to us, what we see happening today is bringing us very close to this end. But let's not end here. There's still a little bit to go. Interestingly enough, we're not told here anything about the Antichrist destruction. That we can read in a single verse in Revelation 19, verse 20. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. There's the end. There's the end of the enemy. And as we close out this chapter, let me just say uh, just a few things about the nature and the character of this false Messiah. Better yet, let's let the prophecy of Zechariah tell us. Look at what he's called in Zechariah 11, verses 15 through 17. And the Lord said unto me, Take unto thee yet the instruments of a foolish shepherd, a foolish shepherd. For lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land which shall not visit those that be cut off. Neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that that is broken, nor feed that that standeth still. But he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Woe to the idle shepherd 
That means the, a worthless shepherd, because idols are worthless. He says, Woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and, and upon his right eye, and his, and his arm shall be cleaned, dry, or clean dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. That's what his end will be like. And Scripture makes it clear Yet how sad it is that after rejecting the true shepherd, the flock of Israel will accept not only a foolish shepherd, but a worthless one as well. One spoken of by Jesus in in John 5.43. Jesus said, I am come in my Father's name, and, and and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. Jesus came and they, as a nation, rejected Him. One will come whom they will receive with open arms. And you know, the very thought of that is, is, is really possible because Mike Huckabee stated something about the Iran nuclear deal that our current administration brokered with Iran, who, by the way, this nation continues to have leadership that calls for the death of America and death of Israel. Well, don't get me started about that. Okay, let me, let me get back on point. Mike Huckabee said of this, this deal that what this is eventually going to happen is that they are going to bring Israel to the door of the oven. He said that. And he stands by it, and I'm thankful that he does. Because he's not the one who said it first. The Iranians continue to say it. They continue to be the ones to bring up the Holocaust. Why am I bringing this up? Because while he has had people that have stood by him that are Jewish people, that understand the Word of God and understand what's going on in the, in, the, in, the, in the times in which we're living, a whole lot of Jewish people have, have you know, come down on him for it. And I kept thinking, see, that's the mentality. That's the mentality that eventually is, is only looking for peace at any cost. But that, they missed the Prince of Peace that paid the cost with his death. So th- this is a crucial issue today that that we see, you know, that him Jesus they did not receive but one will come who they will receive. But I I don't want to I don't want to close there. I want to close with this. Turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Yes, we're going to close. And by the way, it's raining so hard, we should stay another hour. John chapter 1. Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. What we just said. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name, both Gentile and Jewish which were born not of blood, 
nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And notice this. And the Word, the Logos, Jesus, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. We beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. We beheld His glory. And today we can behold His glory. Every time we gather, every time we worship Him, every time we praise Him, every time we step out the doors of this church or our homes and we bear in us the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. You are the light of the world, Jesus said. You are the light. And then of himself he says, I am the light of the world. In me there is no darkness. This world is getting darker and darker and darker. But praise God, That just means the light is coming again. Amen? All right. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and bless you so much for your light, for your life, for your love, for your grace, for your mercy, and for your truth. And we here tonight are thankful, Father, for the privilege that you have given us each and every day of our lives to appreciate your word, to read it, to study it, to grow in it, to to share it, to proclaim it and declare it to this world. We thank you that you have poured out your spirit upon us so that we can be your servants. We're so blessed to have everything that we have because you have given us what we need for life and godliness through Jesus Christ. So tonight, Lord, we we pray for a safe journey of all of those that are here tonight to their homes (laughs) throughout this flood of water that may be outside and, and just watch over them, protect them. May we do our part in doing the right things on the road. But Lord, gather us together once again. Should you tarry, gather us together that we might worship you once again, praise you once again, learn of you once again, and grow together in the nurture and admonition of your precious word. We thank you and we bless you. I pray, Father, that those who bear any burdens on their hearts tonight, Lord God, will be able right now, this very moment, to trust you enough to lay down their hearts and their burdens before you. In fact, Peter tells us to cast our cares upon you because you care for us. If we haven't cast our cares upon you because we've been casting them out to everybody else, it's time that we cast them on you. 
and do what we know will be more beneficial to us when we do so. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your mercies. Thank you for your truth. We bless you and we praise you in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.